coming up this hour and next. We're dedicating the entire show to Martin Luther King Jr. Day. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And Brian, when I tell you that I'm excited about today's show, <laughs> true or false, is that an exaggeration? It is not an exaggeration. In fact, why? Why would I be excited. so excited? What is what is what is my excitement rooted in today? So uh, it is rooted, I think, in the fact that of our eight segments, we have seven guests today and they're yes. all going to be unbelievable. I, we know that we've had many of the uh, these pastors on our show in advance, but I thought you had a great idea going, hey, on Martin Luther King Day, let's hear particularly uh, from as many African-American pastors as we can and just hear, and it's going to be awesome. So I'm really glad that we're doing this. I can't wait. And just so you're clear, it's not just seven guests like smushed into you know two segments, nope. seven different segments, the next seven segments, seven different guests of leaders, pastors, thinkers, theologians, uh, most of whom are from our area, weighing in on today and some of the things we're celebrating, but also some of the things worth lamenting and working towards. I just, goodness, I'm just so excited. I think I think it's going to be a remarkable time. And uh, you'll hear Brian and I's voices less. So that's a win yes, you will. for everybody. <laughs> it's going to be a lot less us talking and a whole lot more just us listening. So I, I got a, a couple of articles. One by our friend. Can we call him a friend yet? Esau Macaulay. I just uh, mostly because we, we want him to be our friend. Yes. Right. We reference him so much. I feel like we at least owe him that. Um, but he wrote an article for Christianity Today that I just thought was great. Do you want to get us into it? I do. It begins by him talking about growing up in Alabama and the role that Dr. King uh, and uh, played just in his life. Uh, but then he goes to he goes on to say this. By contrast, the king that I see online on Martin Luther King Jr. Day is a stranger to me. This beloved figure is in part the construction of a society that never fully loved him or the cause he represented. King died an unpopular man. In 1968, the year of his death, 75% of Americans disapproved of his views and activities. That mm. was up from 50% in 1963. Today, his approval rating nears 90%. Some might suggest that with hindsight, Americans have come to appreciate King in a way that was impossible during the racist era in which he lived. But things are not that simple. If social media is any indication, a large portion, he writes, of America still hasn't wrestled with the King of 1968. And he goes on to say, uh, to cite a USA Today study of the most tweeted Martin Luther King lines and it, how vague they are. The time is always right to do what is right. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice and everywhere. Uh, the one about darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Uh, and so uh, we'll stop there for now because uh, Esau McCulley, who's brilliant, by the way, uh, he's over at Wheaton College and uh, I would encourage you following him on on Twitter and other social media sites. But he brings up a really startling point. And I think one of the reasons that we're doing the show we're doing today yeah. uh, is this, that uh, that Dr. King and how he was seen and how he was accepted or not accepted, uh, uh, eventually leading to his murder versus how people uh, quote him and see him now. Uh, they don't look like the same thing. And Esau McCulley wants to kind of remind us of that today. Yeah. So so why do you think that happens? Is that something that's destined to happen with anyone in history or 
Like, do we just have a, a tendency to, I think it's more than just idolizing because it, it feels like so much of what King said and wrote had a bit of a, a laser focus to it. And if we reduce it to mere sentimentality, that's, you could argue in some ways, almost the antithesis of what he was, what he was getting after and what he was, the kind of change he was leading. So for us to say, oh yeah, man, I love that one quote. In fact, I even have a t-shirt or a picture with it. And to, I, it sometimes feels like the danger can be that we pat ourselves on the back because we can rattle off a couple of quotes thinking that that's what his end goal was when it most certainly was not. And, you know, I've mentioned this elsewhere that sometimes reading some of his writings and speeches and sermons feel eerily current. Like there's yes. aspects you're like, how was this decades ago? This feels like right now, like, are we destined to do this or is there a, a better way forward? How do we keep from that happening? Yeah, I, I think your first question, like, how does this happen? I I, don't, I often don't think it's malicious. I think it's, you know, uh, this time of year that these quotes get pulled out and this is what social media does, right? They just start get passed around and, and you ask, hey, have you ever read letters from a Birmingham jail? And I never have, you know, and so you're going, OK, I don't actually know who he is because over time and over depictions, things get changed and things get uh, sanitized. And and there is also, but I think you're right that there's a little bit of, of, well, this part makes us feel more comfortable. So therefore we'll highlight this part. And that's one of the reasons we're having a bunch of different pastors on today, because I'm guessing some of them will make you and I feel uncomfortable or at least some of our listeners. And, and that's a good thing uh, because it moves the conversation forward. And, um, and so I do think there's a the reason there is a holiday, a Martin Luther King Day, should be for us to go, OK, let me take some time to to uh, to reflect, not just on what I've been taught, but to dig into what he has said, to watch a speech, to uh, read letters from a Birmingham jail or other things. Uh, it's not really the world we live in. Right. Though, because you go, OK, I saw this wonderful Facebook post with this meme or this quote. And uh, and it's a lot easier to do that. So I'm excited for today. I'm excited for today to be challenged and to go, OK. Uh, let's continue wrestling because it is hard to look at those numbers and go, he was voted like the most hated person uh, in the mid to late sixties before he died. And now how he's viewed today is very stark and very different. Well, and so he mentions that's actually how we saw ends the article. He talks about how he existed, you know, in just this, this public disdain that maybe, maybe a lot of us don't even know that much, but here's how he ends. He says, but it was also this King who made space for hope. His hope for the future did not arise from a failure to see or acknowledge racism and white supremacy. His last book names and explores white supremacy at length. What made King special was an unshakable faith rooted in his belief in God's purposes that racism did not have to be the final sentence in the book of the American mm -hmm. story. He believed that, quote, the value in pulling racism out of its obscurity and stripping of stripping of it of its rationalizations lies in the confidence that it can be changed. Like just take a minute or so and respond to that. Like, do you, it's a question that you ask a lot of our guests, actually, do you have hope or how do you find hope in these circumstances? How, how do those, those words from Esau and King hit you today? Uh, exactly what you just said, like full of hope, because so much when you watch TV now, uh, whether it was, um, you know, w with everything that happened around uh, around George Floyd in the summer or even like the Capitol last week, all of this stuff, it could be really easy to lose hope. And I think when we lose hope, when people lose hope, 
then, you know, they kind of throw in the towel or, mm. you know, just kind of say, nope, this isn't worth it. And so to say that Dr. King, who faced so much and eventually lost his life for all of this, uh, to that very line by Esau there going, he left, he made space for hope. And just the very essence of the I had a dream speech that we all know. Uh, going, I, I picture a better day coming that then fuels your ability to fight what you see going on now, because you're doing it for the purpose of something better, a better future, right. uh, whether it be for yourself, for your children, for your grandchildren, whatever it might be. And so, yeah, I, I think in the context of Dr. King, but then for all of us to be challenged by like in my own life, am I leaving space for hope or our church or culturally, whatever else it might be, because it is hope that then fuels us uh, to reach for a better future. That's well said, man. Well, coming up next and for the remainder of the show, you all are in for a treat. Every segment, a new guest, and we're dedicating the entire show to Martin Luther King Jr. Starting first with Pastor Ricky Brown. Uh, he's a pastor of New Covenant Church right here in Chicago. That's what's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. We are thrilled to have back, I think, for a hat trick. I think maybe his third time, the one and only Pastor Ricky Brown. Welcome back to the show, sir. Hey, Ian, Brian, thanks so much for having me. So good to be on again with you. Man, likewise, brother. Would you would you just take a, a minute or two or five, if you want, and introduce yourself to our audience? Oh, it won't take that long. Uh, <laughs> Ricky Brown, uh, founder and lead pastor of New Creation Church in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago, uh, married to an extraordinary woman named Amber. Um, I am a professional lasagna eater. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that sounds like the greatest description anyone could have, a professional lasagna eater. Uh, hey, Ricky, as we're on a Martin Luther King Day and we're all uh, kind of celebrating and thinking about his legacy, kind of a difficult question, but how would you uh, describe his legacy, Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy, both culturally, but also the effect in your own life? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, as a as a person who's a pastor and communicator, um, one of the things that I don't I don't often hear attributed to Dr. King is in my eyes, he's literally the greatest and most effective orator that has ever lived. Mm. Uh, his ability to captivate an audience and use language and rhetoric to move people from point A to point B is just astounding. I don't think that there's ever, you know, you know, lived in, in, in modern times, I'm saying uh, a person with his, um, oratorical uh, abilities. And then mm. as far as just my, my own life, I mean, his sacrifice um, to live his life in a way to be an advocate for nonviolent protests uh, and to move uh, uh, African-Americans forward in this country uh, are benefits I am, uh, you know, uh, benefiting from still today. Uh, I think that, uh, man, <laughs> As far as being a person of color, you know, a, a black man in America, uh, I don't want to think of where what my life would be like without his contribution. Yeah. I mean, he moved uh, this race forward in America, and um, and we still have yet a ways to go. Uh, but so grateful for what what he did do in the and the sacrifice he laid, ultimately making the ultimate sacrifice, giving his life. 
Yeah, right. I, I uh, I'll be honest with you. This morning, I was reading some of his his speeches and letters, and I was struck by how so many parts of what I read felt like they could have been written yesterday. Like it was haunting and and angering in a lot of ways and really disturbing. Do you, do you feel some of that sense too? And if so, why, why do you think that is? Oh man. Uh, yes, I do. Um, I, I, I definitely do. Um, I think because, you know, America has yet to repent and, and confess, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think that's where it is. The first thing, that an, an alcoholic does at AA. It says, hi, my name is Tom, and I am an alcoholic. And America has yet to just walk into the meeting and say, hi, my name is America, and I am a racist. Mm-hmm. And that's what needs to happen, or else uh, we're going to continue to see uh, the the type of uh, the type of things we're seeing today. I mean, I, one of the things that was most shocking to me, I think it didn't, because there's so many things that have happened, right? Last couple of years, 2020 was like the year from like Southwest hell, you know, <laughs> it was, it was, <laughs> and, and, but when we saw the, the March in Charlottesville, it's like, these are 20, 22, 23, 24 year old uh, guys out there, you know, with torches. Mm-hmm. And that was really concerning to me. It's like this is still being taught. It's still being handed down, you know. And so uh, we have to first just repent and confess. You know, confess is an admission of guilt, but then repent and and turn from my wicked ways. And until that happens, uh, when Dr. King's writings are, you know, 400 years old, they'll be like, man, did he write this yesterday? Unless we... From, from from our ways. Yeah. Uh, Ricky, as a pastor, um, how would you answer this? How, what, what does the gospel have to say about race, about racism? What's something we've all been wrestling with now for, you know, for a long time. What, what, when you're preaching or when you're talking, whether it be to other pastors or to your church, what does the gospel have to say about race? Well, that's a great question. You know, I, I posted something. Uh, it was actually the title of a sermon. It was, is there anything more Christian than social justice? And mm. depending on how you define social justice, that could really cause some some heartburn for some people. But the, the, the point of this thing is, is that the gospel is the good news that that answers the human dilemma, which is Jesus Christ. Hmm. That's it. It is the only answer to the human dilemma. It provides us eternal life and a pathway to have a relationship with the Father. And concerning race, I mean, at the, you know, in Revelations, we see every tribe, every nation, every tongue gathered around the throne, uh, worshiping. And there's one thing that all of those tribes, nations, and tongues will have in common. None mm. of us could afford our seats. We mm. all Jesus Christ, the spotless and blameless Lamb to die uh, uh, as a atoning sacrifice for our sins in order that we could be there. So Mm -hmm. there is no place of privilege in heaven. Every single one of us needed Jesus as the way, the door uh, to the Father. And so because of that, the least that we could do, the least that we could do is live our lives in such a way on earth 
uh, that mm. will reflect that truth of the gospel that none of us, none of us could earn, possibly be good enough uh, to afford our ability to have a place uh, of eternal life with the Father. See, I love that. This is this is why I need to be perfect to have on the show, man, because you, you are a pastor and you're a writer. I know that you're like a lover of people, but you, you also, I, I just feel like you have like the fire of a visionary. Like, I just feel like you see future possibilities and realities when the rest of us maybe struggled to see it. And I, I think of, I think of what, what King said in his, his letter from Birmingham, Joe, he's like, we, there's, there's two kinds of extremists, extremists for hate and extremists for love. And what you just painted is a picture of being an extremist for love. I'd love for you to take like the last minute or so and expand on that. Paint for us a picture. What, what does that look like in our cities, in our communities, in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our own homes to, to step out, to live out what it is that, that you're talking about? Absolutely. So the, the reason why, you know, I preach this message is there anything more Christian than social justice because uh, the most Christ-like thing that we can do is to give up our resources, our place of privilege and power for the benefit of someone else, the voiceless, the homeless, mm. the fatherless, the motherless, because Jesus Christ, for no benefit of his own, right. stepped out of eternity into time, clothed his divinity and our humanity, and did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He reconciled us to God. Mm. And so... He left his place of power. He left his place of, 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 of privilege and, and wrapped himself in, in flesh for no benefit of, the, of his own. The most Christian thing we could do is to not be a faith in America that cares more about how people treat us than mm. we care about how we treat other people. Come and on. so when we get to this place where our number one is our rights and our way of life and what people say to us, man, there's just a stench that fills society concerning mm. everything we're saying and doing because the Christ-like way is to inconvenience ourselves and to mm -hmm. empty ourselves of ourselves for the benefit of others, not to seek our own best interest first. Because if we will seek first, the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness. He will add all of these things that we need unto us. Come on, Ricky Brown, taking us to church. Our guest today is Pastor Ricky Brown, pastor of New Creation Church. I highly recommend you go and learn more at newcreationchicago.org. That's newcreationchicago.org. Brother, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Love you guys, man. Thanks Likewise, so much. brother. You were listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. We are thrilled to have for an entire segment, none other than Quentin Mumphrey. He is the founder and senior pastor of New Hope Covenant Church. Welcome back to the show, brother. Oh, thank you all for having me again. Hey, it's our pleasure, man. Would you uh, remind our audience again who you are, where you're from, what you do? Just introduce yourself briefly. Absolutely. Uh, Quentin Mumphrey, the founder and senior pastor of New Hope Covenant Church Chicago, we're on the southeast side of the city, um, and I'm just glad to lead that faith, uh, that uh, tribe of faith, and um, also do some adjunct teaching uh, with colleges and some other stuff. So wear a few different hats, but uh, my primary role is uh, serving and leading the people of New Hope, 
and um, and uh, contributing what I can to the church planting movement. Love it. That's awesome. And Quentin, uh, on this Martin Luther King Day, Ian and I want to have as many pastors on as we could and just continue this conversation, an honest conversation about race and the church and what we see going on. And so I would just love to hear what you're experiencing right now, what, you know, not even just the past couple of months, but even thinking back to the summer or before, uh, what have things been like for you uh, most recently? Well, for me, um, it has been a time of reflection, but also a time of asking what are the corresponding actions? You know, as I reflect on Dr. King, this day of Dr. King, we like to kind of celebrate uh, his legacy, but also, but sometimes we, we divorce the image of King from the work of King. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think that's a false bifurcation that we sometimes land on. And we have to remember he wasn't just uh, about platitudes and speeches, but there was actual strategy and work and planning. And so I've often, for me, uh, as I reflect, even on the, the past summer, you know, it's been a, the last year has been just a crazy time around the world, but particularly here in the United States of America, um, not only with the pandemic, but with the civil unrest, with racial tensions, uh, with, with conversations that we're having and rehashing, uh, really what is, uh, I would argue is a 400 year old conversation. So for me, it's a time of reflection, but it's also a time of strategy, uh, of thinking of what are the things that can be done to move things forward, uh, to create uh, the kind of future that not only I would envision, but the kind of future that we would be happy to leave the next generation with. Mm-hmm. That's so good. There's another excerpt from uh, King's letter from Birmingham jail that it, it kind of hit me in a new way this year, to be honest. And I, I didn't prepare you for this question, so please forgive me, but he he talks about the white moderate. He talks about, mm-hmm the white perspective that, you know, encourages, you know, people who are speaking up to like wait for a more convenient season or I like your end goal, but not your methodology. Are, are you seeing some of that at work right now? And if so, like, how do we, how do we find our way through that? Oh, I absolutely see it right now, but I think it's not new. Uh, King saw it in his day. Uh, but as I read the writings of uh, Frederick Douglass and yeah. uh, people like Denmark Vesey, uh, and even uh, Richard Allen and others who are who are early leaders in the black church movement in the 17 and 1800s in this country, many of them dealt with the same thing uh, of moderates who didn't support the institution of slavery in in uh, in theory, but were not bold enough to be abolitionists against it. And I think this whole trap of the moderate, particularly in the white church in America, um, is a dangerous thing. Uh, King addressed his letter to the Birmingham jail to that, as you all know, that group of moderate white ministers who on who in their mind thought they were friends of King. Right. And that's where the quote, you know, that in times of in times of trouble, we will not remember the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Mm. Um, and and the re- one of the things that I would say about people who are moderate, it's easy to be moderate when you're not the one dealing with the with the affliction or the suffering. Right. Mm. So. If um, if I am cut and there's a there's a big cut on my arm and I'm bleeding everywhere and I'm hysterical and I'm driving to, my, to get myself to the hospital and I'm flying. Well, if I fly past you, it's easy to say, wonder why that guy's speeding like this. Right. He shouldn't be driving so recklessly. Hmm. Well, you're not the one bleeding. Right. And so I think that when we talk about this whole thing of being moderate, I think it's easy to be moderate when you're not the one that's dealing with the major effects of it. And that's the response mm. that King had. But we see mm. it in this day. Right. There are those who will say, well, you know, um, we're in a we people love to use the term post-racial. 
And I think one of the things this last year has shown us is we are not we are not, in fact, living in a post-racial America. Um, I think we've kind of lulled ourselves. And I mean, we this nation collectively, we've kind of give kind of given ourselves this illusion of being in a, in a post-racial uh, country. And I think this last year has shown us that we are not. Hmm. Yeah. I would love, uh, Quentin, to ask you the same question we asked uh, Ricky Brown last segment, and that is, uh, does the gospel have anything to say really about race and racism? And, and assuming it does, what would you say that it has to say about it? Um, well, the gospel absolutely has something to say about race. You know, one of the things that I think about the ministry of Jesus, uh, Jesus, he, he's there were ways in which he challenged the status quo and he challenged even we wouldn't call we wouldn't necessarily call it racism, but there was a form of of bias and bigotry and and what would be a parallel of racism amongst the Pharisees, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they looked down upon the people who not only didn't look like them, but people who didn't come from their same social setting and status. Uh, one of the things that is amazing is when Jesus said, "I must pass through Samaria," uh, and when you look at Jesus's encounter with the woman at the well, uh, number one. Uh, She's coming to the well in the middle of the day, which is not the normal time for the woman to come. So that lets you know there's a level of social isolation. Right. Um, She is a Samaritan woman. He is a Jewish, what would be considered rabbi or teacher of the law. So that is a religious barrier Hmm. and a social barrier. But yet Jesus confronts her head on in a loving way, speaks directly into her life situation beyond her identity. And brings her hope of reconciliation. Um, the woman who was uh, caught in the act of adultery, go and sin no more. So Jesus was always breaking through barriers. Uh, he 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 ministered to people um, across gender lines and across racial and ethnic and religious lines. People who did not come from the same background as That's him. Right. That's right. So I believe the gospel has a lot to say about it. And then his closing words to the disciples in, in Acts chapter one. When he said that you, you will be my witnesses after the Holy Spirit comes upon you on Pentecostal. So, you know, we got to go to the book of Acts. <laughs> um, you know, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Mm-hmm. So that's, right. that's gospel in a nutshell, being witnesses to Jesus in Jerusalem. So that means being a witness locally mm-hmm. in, in uh, Judea. That means regionally. In Samaria, mm-hmm. that means cross-culturally. And in the other parts of the world, that means globally. So the, the gospel witness is to be taken re- locally, regionally, cross-culturally and globally. So, yeah, I believe the gospel has a lot to say about race. Come on. That's so good. All right. So we have like a minute or so left. And you, you mentioned this at the very beginning. I'd love to give you a little more time to talk to this idea. What, what are some of the dangers of reducing King's legacy to, to mere sentimentality? You know, it's like, oh, I'll post a quote once a year and call it good. When like what you were saying is uh, there's a lot more work to be done. What what are some of the dangers and maybe what's a way forward to avoid doing that? Well, I, yeah, I would speak to that in two ways. So one, the danger of reducing King to the I have a dream speech. You know, when we well, on Martin Luther King Day, one of the things that kind of annoys me sometimes is we we only hear quotes from the I have a dream speech. I have a dream that one day this. And right. But um, Bernice King tweeted his daughter, his youngest daughter, actually tweeted something today that really struck me. She said, um as you reflect this day, remember that my father in 1967, a year before his death, was the most hated man, was one of the most voted, one of the most hated men in America. Mm-hmm. Um, King's legacy is complex. He suffered with depression in the last couple of years of his life yep. and isolation. 
Um, and I, I don't have time to go into all of the reasons for that. Part of it was because many th- there were people in the black community who felt like he was not aggressive enough mm-hmm. and people in the white community who felt like he was too aggressive. So he was really a man without a home mm-hmm. and without a tribe because the black power movement was starting to rise from 1966 on. Right. And they felt he was being too passive and too soft. But then the others, you know, such as the white moderates, felt like he's being too aggressive. So he was dealing with some depression, plus the threats on his life, his family, home being bombed, all of these things. Um, And so his legacy is complex. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a very human side of King that we do not often talk about. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at the speeches that he, of of the last two, three years from 1965 to his death, uh, he was killed not because he wanted to integrate lunch counters. He was killed because he challenged the system of America, particularly the economic system. And some of his words about the Vietnam War and when he began to equate how much the Vietnam War was costing the country versus how much the country was spending on the poor. Mm. Those are the things that really got him killed. That's what made him a threat. Right. So I think if we want to desanitize the legacy of King and really be about action, we have to ask, what are the systems that King challenged? And and what is the work that King really ultimately gave his life for, which mm-hmm. a lot of it had to do with uh, fighting poverty and, and, and not just integrating things for the sake of integration, but leveling the playing field in a true sense and saying, let's make life better for the people of this country who can't fight for themselves. Gosh, that's a great word. Our guest today is Quentin Mumphrey. He's the founder and senior pastor of New Hope Covenant Church. You can learn more at newhopecovenantchicago.org. That's newhopecovenantchicago.org. Pastor Quentin, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you all for having me. And our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And we're thrilled to have on the show, I think for the second time, we'll we'll, we'll dig into the archives. That's right. Pastor Tyron (laughs) Laws, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you so much. Glad to be back. Hey, it's our pleasure. Would, Would you just take a moment and introduce yourself to everybody? Sure. Tyron Laws, pastor of the Christian Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church in West Pullman, a neighborhood of Chicago. Um, I am married to my wife, Dr. Marcella Laws, three sons, and I am currently a Ph.D. student in New Testament Biblical Studies at Wheaton, hoping to defend in May. So praise God for that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. That is impressive. Congratula- oh, congratulations in heart. We hope it goes well. And Thank you. Uh, yeah, Pastor Laws, uh, so one of our goals today on this Martin Luther King Day is to just reflect upon Dr. King's legacy and to have on pastors from the area who can help us with that. So how would you answer that question? What 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 is uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's legacy culturally, but also the influence in your own life? Yeah, it's an ambivalent legacy. I mean, um, and when I mean by that, I mean that there's a real legacy and then there's kind of a perceived legacy. Right. Uh, real a real legacy we see progression right we every time you see black folks voting and record breaking turnout that's part of his legacy right every time you see uh intentional conversations about race uh within the church particularly from white evangelicals and black evangelicals that's part of his legacy um when you when you see christians of various different ethnicities coming together to not just talk about racial reconciliation, but racial injustices and writing those roles. That's part of his legacy. But then you also have kind of like this perceived legacy, this kind of image that we have of, of Martin Luther King that sometimes is not reflective of what, what, what it was really about. Like sometimes you'll hear people say stuff like, you know, we should just love like Martin Luther King and, 
And, and right. it seems like that's kind of like a uh, language used to micromanage any conversation that would be considered divisive. So let's not talk about that. That's just, you know, he, he was about love. It's like, well, yeah, he was about love, but <laughs> let's talk about like love without hypocrisy because right. he wasn't about that type of love where you just, uh, aff- you are affectionate toward an idea, um, but you don't really value all of the, 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 you like the idea of racial reconciliation in theory, but you won't do the work to actually, you know, get it done. So, yeah, so you have that type of ambivalence when it's legacy. And so everybody remembers, and you know, he's he's everybody's favorite person, but he was a very hated person. Right. Um, and so, yeah, the, when, when I think of his legacy, I think of those ambivalence. That yeah, really I'm, th- yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of a, a Cornell West quote that I, I'm reminded of often where he says, justice is what love looks like in public. Like this idea that yeah. we just sort of love in some sort of nice sentimental way that doesn't actually lead to justice or healing or the righting of wrongs. But King also talks a lot about forgiveness, right? When I'm thinking about, he says there's, you know, there's some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. What role do you think like true biblical forgiveness has for us as a, as a people, as a planet kind of making our way forward? Yeah. You know what? So um, in regards to race relations, this is a very, uh, hot topic, and um, particularly because in African American community, oftentimes we are pushed towards and rushed towards forgiveness mm-hmm. um, in contexts that sometimes are are not reciprocated, wouldn't be reciprocated towards us um, if the shoes were turned. So we can talk about like the the Botham John uh, and the Brant John uh, and the Amber Geiger. You know his brother Brant. He, he says, "I forgive you." And 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 we see this from time to time with the the, the um, Dylan Roof, you know, three days later mm-hmm. after the shooting um, headlines all over the place about the forgiveness of the from the victims. Right. And it's the, the where forgiveness is always in order for Christian. So I'm never going to like, man, why you you know, it's always in order. But the problem is that it's oftentimes weaponized against right. the African-American a church community. Um, so again, going back to like the Dylan Roof uh, situation, three days later, three days later after the ABC had highlighted um, how the family, it was all over the news, over every news network, you know, their, their, their forgiveness. But we don't oftentimes see that broadcasted mm-hmm. in, in, um, in other contexts. And so this Christian ethic or forgiveness is then used to weaponize against the African-American community, particularly um, African-American church community to say almost implicitly your anger is never justified. Your your rage is never like let's move past that and get to forgiveness. And what it, and, it, and it's a it's a very subtle tool because what it what it says is if the victims of if the family's victims have forgiven, then who are we to hmm. be mad? Right. So it's a it's a very sophisticated equivocation in some cases, but then the other, the other thing is this, is that what is the goal of forgiveness? The goal of forgiveness is reconciliation. Hmm. And um, I would, um, I would argue that you, I would argue that a person doesn't have to um, repent for me to forgive. I would argue that I can forgive you 
um, based off my own, just because I decide I want you. I don't have to depend on you. But I will say, I would argue that there's no real reconciliation without repentance. So the goal of repentance is reconciliation and the goal of forgiveness is reconciliation. And so where I may be able to forgive you without you, you know, ever repenting, we can't have true reconciliation if you haven't repented. And so I think those are some, some important components that we need to keep in mind when we're having this conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's, that's powerful. What What's your hope uh, looking ahead, especially around topics and issues of race? What's your hope for the church uh, proactively? What would you love to see the church do and be over the next months, years, decades? Yeah. Well, first, let's say the church is behind. Right. But, um, these conversations about race and, and things like that, like the larger part of the society are having these um, conversations. And then it's interestingly, when the when the church finally uh, catches up, it's 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 still behind. Right. So, I mean, uh, critical race theory and things like that. And that stuff we're just now starting to have conversations about. But the larger culture has been having it for decades. So. Um, yeah, so one one is we just acknowledge that the church is behind, and I think that's part of this because the church has been kind of complicit in this um, conversation of, of 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 racial injustice. So, you know, if we talk about it, it means that we would have to do some repenting and do some acknowledging and things of that matter. I would hope, um, I would hope in moving forward that um, we we'll be willing to suffer. Um, one of the questions, and this is a good question, right? What must we do to move forward? But I think to answer that question, we must ask ourselves, what is impeding our progress? Hmm. And if we ask ourselves what is impeding our progress, part of it, when it comes to the church and the conversations about race, is the fear of retribution, the fear of getting in trouble, the fear of losing something. Hmm. And there's so many conversations um, that I've had is just kind of like that's what's that's what's getting in the way, and so I think it's, we're going to have to have a robust theology of suffering, where mm-hmm. not where we are suffering together, black and white Christians are suffering together, and say, hey, if I say this, if I do this, if I if I call this out, you know, it's it's going to cause some major problems. But guess what? That's what the Freedom Riders were doing. That's where Dang. that's what King and others were doing. And that was and people who marched with them of, of various different ethnicities. It was a call to say, you know what? I don't care the pushback. I'm just going to we just need to say it. I'm not going to you know, forget, you know, trying to. You know, Assange feelings and all that kind of stuff. We just need to. We just got to have these serious conversations. So I think part of what's going to happen is that we're going to have to embrace that this road to um, racial justice and kingdom justice is probably going to be a road of suffering, and we just want to embrace it. That's so good. Our guest today has been Pastor Tyron Laws, pastor of Christian Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church and the author of the book The Round Table. Pastor Laws, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much, sir. It's been our pleasure. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up this hour, four segments, four very special guests. You're listening to The Common Good. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are thrilled for the rest of this hour We have a number of really wonderful special guests, and we are kicking off the hour with Reverend Alvin C. Bibbs Sr. Welcome back to the show, sir. 
And I'm honored to be back, my friend. Thanks for having me. Oh, my goodness. It was a no-brainer, and we're so grateful for you coming back. Would you, would you just take a minute or two and in, introduce yourself to our audience? Yes, I, I would love to do that. Again, uh, Reverend Alvin Seabib Sr., I'm the president and CEO of the Justice Journey Alliance Leadership Foundation of Chicago. I also uh, wear another hat, uh, serving an organization called Together Chicago, where I serve as the community and faith engagement officer. So I'm the man of hats. I'm the man of justice. And we're trying to make it happen all for God, my friend. Man, oh, man, I love it. You are always such a gracious guest, too. And I have about a million questions I want to ask you, but plenty of people won't remember. You actually have a story, a personal story that is very fitting for today in particular. Could you tell us that story? Yeah, today is uh, a very uh, memorable and special day for me. Uh, as a child growing up in the city of Chicago, I grew up in the housing projects of Cabrini Green. And I'm a son of the AME Church, the, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the oldest denomination, uh, literally, uh, that represents my culture. Uh, at the same time, um, my parents served as key leaders within my church home there in the heart of Cabrini Green. And because they were leaders within the church, they were very closely connected with the senior pastor and all of the news that were coming into the church. They just had a, a, a front row kind of seat to anything that was happening around the church. Well, they discovered that Dr. King was going to be visiting our city to support the street and sanitation workers. Uh, regarding the lack of fair wages, et cetera. And he wanted to preach and visit three churches while he was here in our city. Hmm. Well, one of those churches happened to be my uh, home church where I was raised spiritually, uh, which is Wayman. Well, knowing the fact that Dr. King was going to be there, my parents got us up super early to go to church and we had great seats, uh, third row center pew, the the congregation and sanctuaries just jam-packed. People were hanging on the rafters, all outdoors, trying to get in because they knew Dr. King was going to be in the house. It hasn't been that crowded since I did some teaching there. And uh, <laughs> you got it. You got it. Some people are slow with the laugh. <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> I love it. I'm with you. I and got it. <laughs> so, I, all right. I love it. So I'm sitting there in my mom's lap. The place is jam-packed. And everyone is waiting with great anticipation for Dr. King to enter the sanctuary. Finally, the doors of the church open. Here comes Dr. King and his entourage making their way to the, the front of the church. And it's, it's time for Dr. King to deliver one of his uh, prolific messages that uh, you never forget a Dr. King message, no matter how hmm. old you are. Hmm. Well, in the midst of his sermon, uh, he was challenging the congregation to take responsibility of the community, uh, the families, the next generation of leaders. In the midst of that sermon, he pointed out into the crowd for this young person to come and stand next to him as an example in his sermon text. The young person wouldn't come forward, just being overly shy, did not want to leave the comfort of mom and dad. But that young person was me. Hmm. So at the end of this service, I had a chance to go up and greet Dr. King with my four other uh, older siblings and my parents. Dr. King turns to my parents and he asked them, he said, would you mind if I say a prayer of blessing over your child's life? So I'm standing there. They turned to Dr. King and they agreed. They did not ask me. This is 1967. So I have this huge Michael Jackson afro. <laughs> and Dr. King was a short, stocky guy, but he had these huge hands. It was like he can palm two basketballs wow. in one hand. He took his right hand. He placed it down on the top of my neatly shaped afro. And he said a prayer of blessing over my life that was absolutely powerful. 
Wow. I literally walked around for several weeks with this imprint in my Afro. My friends would ask me all the time, say, man, why don't you do something about the fro? I was like, no, you don't understand. I've been blessed by the king. Hmm. Well, friends, the following year, we all know what happened in April of 1968. Dr. King was assassinated. That's right. And my community literally went up in flames. The rioting that took place in Chicago and other major cities across the United States of America. I'll never forget that time, guys, because I thought to myself that I would never make it out of my community alive. It was like a war zone. Mayor Daly Sr. called in the National Guards. They tear gassed all of the entry points of the building. If you lived on the first, second, or third floor apartment complexes, tear gas began to creep through the the doors of of the apartment complexes. And there were families that had infant children that literally had to take their babies and place their heads inside of freezers just to get fresh air. And I'm sad to report that many of those infant children lost their lives that was never, ever reported. And so as I think about this day in our country and the history behind the issues of systemic racism and, and prejudice and bigotry and all of those injustices that are happening here today, I was ordained at a very early age and commissioned by Dr. King for such a time as this. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that story. Uh, you, you've committed your life now to justice, right? You're part of the Justice Journey Alliance, and you've written books around this topic. This is clearly something that you, you've given your life to. And one of the things I've been grappling with this year in particular is that it feels like one of the characteristics of privilege is the ability to have like a waning interest in justice. Like I'll see so many posts and quotes from King today and then little action tomorrow from a lot of people. And I'm, I'm wondering how, how do we not take our eyes off the goal, the prize? How, how do we commit to the kind of like long obedience in the same direction that, that you clearly have modeled? Well, the lack of discipline and the state of denial that we experience within our world and society today, it helps us uh, to understand why we're in the state that we're in currently. Hmm. We're in the midst of a racial pandemic, friends. And the, one of the things that I love about the text that, that God allowed me to write was crazy enough to care, changing your world through compassion, justice and racial reconciliation, because Jesus was passionate about people. He was intense. He was inclusive. He was loving. He was compassionate. He was caring yes. at the same time. And we have to have that same crazy mentality in order to deal with the injustices that we're facing today within our society. Hmm. It's quite simple, friends. We launched a movement here back in in September called Beyond Words Count Us In. And this movement is really uh, a race and racial justice reform movement. And it's really coming out of Isaiah, you know, chapter one, verse 17, where it says very clearly, we must learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed and the marginalized in society. Then it closes out very powerfully in verse 18. It says, let's settle the matter, thus saith the Lord. That is a drop the mic passage of scripture. (laughs) So this Beyond Worse movement, we're right now active in over 15 different cities across North America, and we're meeting this challenge head on to dismantle structural injustice and systemic racism And we're shifting and helping people move from Mm. this place of silence, this place of being uh, uh, in in a state of denial 
and move into a place of being bold and courageous and doing right and settling the matter, thus saith the Lord, now and forevermore. Man, oh man, that'll preach. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I'd love for people to know where can they learn more about you or your books or any of the the projects that you're a part of. Just hit us with all that information. Yeah, you can uh, you know pick up a copy of the book at InterVarsity Press. Go to their website. It's right there, crazy enough to care. You can go to uh, Amazon, any of those locations, and grab a copy of the book, Crazy Enough to Care. You can check us out at thejja.org to find out more information about the Justice Journey Alliance Leadership Foundation of Chicago and the Beyond Words Count Us In movement. And we would love to join you and, and meet you wherever you're at because it's all about justice prevailing for such a time as this. That's so good. Our guest today has been Reverend Alvin C. Bibb, Senior President and CEO of the Justice Journey Alliance. Brother, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. That's our pleasure. And you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. We are thrilled to have back on the show none other than Reverend Watson Jones, the third pastor of Compassion Baptist Church. Welcome back to the show, friend. I am so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Man, it is our pleasure. Would would you just take a moment and reintroduce yourself to our audience? Yes, I am uh, Reverend Watson Jones III. I have the wonderful privilege of pastoring Compassion Baptist Church on the southeast side of Chicago on 95th Street. Uh, I am a son of Chicago, uh, grew up here, uh, am currently married to my wife and three children here. And... uh, in school as well, because I just have not gotten enough of intellectual <laughs> hazing. So here we are. Other than pastoring, having children, and uh, going to school, I, I don't know how you, what else you can do, right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's just punishment. Punishment, I guess. There you go. There you go. Well, Watson, we're so thrilled to have you on again. Uh, as we've been saying throughout the show, as with today being Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and as we reflect upon his legacy, I'm just curious, what do you see as uh, Reverend King's legacy culturally, but also the influence in your own life? Culturally, I'll answer it both ways. Culturally, I think that he left a legacy where he challenged our imagination to think further than what our reality in the 1960s and 50s showed us. In the reality of those days, segregation ruled the day Jim Crow ran it all. And he challenged America to be uh, better and true to at least it's what it said about itself. Hmm. And in one sense, he helped us to see, well, you know, people are people, all people are equal and therefore need to be treated well. He challenged us to think about uh, justice. I think on one hand, you know, he's sort of not given, he was not given the props he was deserving of in the 60s. And in this day, people sort of take the parts of King they love right. and and not the whole of King. And so I think personally for me, he has left a legacy uh, of prophetic ministry where where it is incumbent upon the believer to to reflect the kingdom of God, where the foundations of that kingdom are justice and righteousness, and to specifically point out, call out, scream out wherever injustices exist today, whether they're injustices against black people, whether they're injustices mm-hmm. against other people who are other minority groups, but to be able to speak out for people who have no voice yeah. uh, because God absolutely loves people. So Dr. King's legacy means the world to me in that sense. That's so good. One of the questions that I get as a pastor a lot 
is h- how do I actually live and work for justice? Like beyond the, the tweets and the memes and the quotes, every once in a while, people will come up to me and say, I'm really interested in, in what it is that you say Jesus actually cares about. I don't know where to begin. I don't know how to actually do that. What, what would you say to a person who really does feel like maybe for the first time? Yes, I want to be a part of bringing justice to the world. How? How do I do that? A few ways. Well, one, I challenge people to really read the scriptures. And uh, we know that a lot of Christians are biblically illiterate. I hate to say it. Uh, but when you read specifically the gospel surrounding the life and the lessons of Jesus, uh, and you read even words from his direct apostles, not to say Paul is not a direct apostle, you see that there is a real concern uh, where you see God actually identifying with those who are on the margins of society. Uh, for example, uh, Jesus talking about blessed are the poor. That wasn't just beautiful language. That was a reality where he was speaking to people who were left out of society and, and he's demonstrating his care. Jesus's words, when, um, I was hungry, you fed me, clothed, uh, naked, you clothed me in jail, you visited me. Jesus is not just making rhetorical turns, but he is actually saying in that statement, that God so greatly identifies with those who society can care less for the criminal, the hungry, the poor, the sick, that he so much identifies with them that what we do to them and for them, we actually do to God. So I think it starts with paying attention to how Jesus actually lived in his ministry. That That's one. Hmm. Secondly, it's paying attention to the whole of scripture. Oftentimes, many American Christians specifically love to stay in the world of Paul. And don't get me wrong, I'm not raising one element of scripture over the other, but we don't think about the Old Testament hmm. and we don't consider prophets didn't just jam the people of God up because of idolatry. That's usually how it's summed up. But when you consider the words of Isaiah, Isaiah 59, truth collapsing in the street. And because truth is collapsing in the street, injustice now is existing and pervading. You look at Jonah and God's jamming up the Assyrians. It wasn't just because they were idol worshipers, as you know, Sunday school classes suggest. It was because God saw literally in the Hebrew, the evil of their hands came before his face. Mm-hmm. And what was the evil of their hands? Their brutality towards humans. And, and so whenever there is a disconnect between our relationship with God, you better know that there's going to be a disconnect in how people treat people. So I really do encourage people to pay attention to the whole scripture. Secondly, I think it's, it's, I tell people to be honest about what American history really is. I mentioned truth decaying or falling in the street. A lot of people really do believe some of American myth, which some of it is very good, but America has not always lived up to what it is said about itself. Uh, all people are created equal. It hasn't lived up to that. I mean, even to this very day, we have children, 600 or so, who have not been connected to parents because we don't really believe all people are created equal. All white people generally are created equal, not the rest. So it's a, it's a challenge to be honest about what American history is. And that means you've got to read beyond what is given to us in schools to read, reading books like Stamp from the Beginning by Ibram Kendi or uh, books by Isabella Wilkerson, cast, et cetera, um, to, to, to understand what history really is and what it has meant in America so that you can then begin to confront uh, where evil has sort of set under the surface and allowed to, 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 to run havoc in our yeah. world. And, and Watson, I, I 
we read an article earlier. Ian and I were discussing an article by Esau McCauley where he talked about how yes. Dr. King always left a room for hope. Uh, yes. And it was kind of this hope that fueled. I, I just am curious, are, are you hopeful? Are you hopeful for the church and going forward? And if so, what is it that gives you hope? Yes, I'm hopeful. Um, yes, I'm hopeful because first, Jesus says that uh, he'll build his church and the gates of hell won't prevail against mm-hmm. it. I am hopeful because now more than ever, you have more um, white Christians who are a little bit more knowledgeable or concerned about justice. Um, so I'm hopeful in that sense um, that, you know, justice as a as a as a term is not disregarded as something that is overly progressive. Now you still have some Christians who still say that, but there are more Christians who are saying, no, we need to be concerned about these questions of justice. So I'm very hopeful in that sense. Uh, But I'm also hopeful because, you know, I think about eschatology. I don't mean to be deep, but I think about the kingdom that is here, but not here yet. That is on its way here, that Jesus is bending the arc of history towards justice and, and we will see it play out. And uh, as more and more people repent and more people are called to faithfulness of the gospel and the kingdom of God, we'll see uh, we'll see some changes. So I, I am very hopeful. Yes. I love that. Brother, would you just take a minute or two and let people know where can they learn more about you or your church websites, Twitter handles, any of that stuff? Visit our website, our church website at cbchicago.org. That's cbchicago.org. My Twitter is Watts. My Twitter and Instagram actually are Watson Jones the third, as well as my Facebook. You can find me there. Uh, Thank you so much. Oh, and that's my pleasure. Our guest today has been Reverend Watson Jones, the third pastor of Compassion Baptist Church. Thank you so much for joining us today, brother. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Man, our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. And what a show today. We had seven Mm -hmm. different wonderful guests for seven different segments. And uh, our closer for today is chosen intentionally, none other than Reverend Steve Coble. Welcome back to the show, sir. Man, thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. And uh, I was was thinking when you called me the closer, I was a college pitcher. I was a left-handed pitcher. I'm still (laughs) left-handed. But I was always a starter. I was never the closer. So I'm excited. Now's your time to shine, man. Would you just take a minute or two and uh, introduce yourself to everybody? Yeah, sure. I'm Pastor Steve Coble. I am one of the pastors at Renewal Church of Chicago. You guys got to hear mm-hmm. from my good friend, Derek Puckett. I was formerly at Park Community Church in the city of Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, kind of city center of Chicago for about six years. And uh, I started a PhD at, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in 2013. I'm still figuring out what I'm going to do uh, with that. And then I, I serve on the board of Grip Outreach for Youth here in the city of Chicago. Hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, And Steve, uh, with all the guests we've had today, kind of reflecting upon uh, Martin Luther King Day today, I've just so enjoyed hearing each of them talk about the influence Martin Luther King had in their own lives. So uh, as you close out the show for us, could you just share with us from your own perspective, the role and the influence that Dr. King has had in your life? Man, I, I... I that that uh, even hearing that question it, it stirs up so many different like man how do how do I even capture that right <laughs> in a in a short snippet and uh, one of the things that I was thinking of in in 2017 there was a, a celebration of the Protestant Reformation and I remember sitting around a table with a, a group of uh, pastors and uh, most of them were were white guys and we were trying to figure out what we were going to do for MLK Day but we knew we were going to do something for the 500 
hundredth anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And it was sort of like people were wanting to steer away from doing something to represent Martin Luther King Jr. Day and how much should that influence the church service on a Sunday morning. And I, I thought to myself, like, man, God, if it wasn't for Martin Luther King Jr., like I wouldn't be sitting at this table right now. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Like like literally that's the like that's the extent of his influence and impact uh in my life and in society's uh the trajectory of society itself in America. And so uh, you know, I, I look at things that Martin Luther King Jr. said when he, he was talking about the most segregated hour of uh of the United States is Sunday morning at eleven AM. And I, I think to myself, like that that sentence itself kind of catapulted me and catalyzed the direction of the ministry that I wanted to have uh, in life to really see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And when you look at uh, Ephesians chapter two and the breaking down of the wall of hostility and and between us and God and then us and others, it just seems so clearly biblical to me Hmm. that our, our churches ought to be a reflect, like the world ought to be able to look at our church and be like, man, they at least got it right. And so I feel compelled uh, by that statement and that sentiment and uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech and, and all of those different things. They, they kind of shaped the, the concept of what, it, what vocational ministry needs to look like for me. Hmm. See, Steve, I, I, uh, I so appreciate your perspective because I know you're someone who, who thinks deeply about things, but also has like the local church context in mind when you do. And we haven't asked any of the other guests at this yet, but in light of today and in light of what we saw on January 6th, how, how do you make sense of the attack on the Capitol that we saw and sort of this cultural moment that we find ourselves in right now? Man, it is, there's so, I mean, there's, it's confusing. It's, uh, it, you know, you try to put your arms around it and, and understand it and, and try to, you know, look at things from other people's perspective and, and um, put words to it. And, and one of the things that I think that American society deeply values is this deep sense of autonomy and individualism. And Mm -hmm. so I think that, you know, for so many people, when they look at uh, the history of racism and injustice in America, you know, they, they instantaneously put it in the box of, well, that's not me. Uh, that was that I didn't have anything to do with that. Right. And I think that my mother passed away last year. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you that when my mother passed away, it was like somebody ripped my arm off of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like a part of me. Uh, a part of me is gone. And so I think we have this false notion of individualism and autonomy. And so we want we and we like to, to uh, sort of promote it when it fits our needs, when uh, we don't have anything to do with race and racism, but the reality is what we saw uh, at the nation's capital is uh, a group of people who were angry about something, and in response to that anger, uh, operated as a community, uh, not as individual autonomous people. Right. And so I think that we we downplay the level of uh, of connection that we have to other people, and the way that that plays out in affecting. Uh, society systemically in general. Uh, now, obviously, you know, I think that what we saw uh, January 6th was uh, a response to a lot of conspiracy theory stuff and, um, you know, just 
people getting news from places that that isn't given factual information and uh, and a whole host of, of of other things. But uh, I think that there's like this blind double standard to the the idea of hey something's not happening the way that we want it to happen. Hmm. Now we're gonna go uh, we're gonna go uh, sort of uh, you know in, in essence we're gonna cause an insurrection uh, in in response in response to it. And so. Um, Man, to I don't know if I'm really answering your question, but I think for a lot of bracket black and brown people, they looked at what happened uh, January 6th and all the times that people looked at Colin Kaepernick and said, "Man, why are you protesting that way?" Even though you know peaceful protest in a, in a lot of ways, like he was taking a page out of Martin Luther King Jr.'s book. Hmm. Um, and and then it's sort of like when it fits or when it works for me. Uh, we talk about how to protest, and then when we want to protest our certain way, uh, we'll do it. But it it's it still happens as a communal group uh, where we're not isolated and and separated from from each other. And so, yeah, man, I I think that we we saw a uh, kind of the underbelly of America January sixth. Yeah. Hmm. And see, with the last couple of minutes that we have as a pastor, as a Christ follower, I would love for you just to kind of paint a picture and speak to the opportunity that you see the church having in the coming months, years, decade, whatever it might be. Could you paint a picture for the opportunity ahead for the church? Man, I think the reality for uh, a lot of people in uh, American society is that they don't have the answer to uh, this idea of reconciliation. They don't have the answer to this idea of, of peace and justice. And yet we do, we like any justice, any form of peace that people are promoting finds its authority in the scripture. It doesn't come from, uh, anywhere else. So even the places where people are promoting, uh, for people who look at the progressive side or think that people who are a part of the progressive side of, of, of their politics, Man, the the foundation for the ideas that they're promoting actually comes from the scripture. Hmm. Now, it might not be submitted to the lordship of Jesus, but that's where the authority came from. And so um, I think the opportunity that we have is that we get to actually exemplify what true reconciliation looks like, what true justice looks like, right. all of those different things. But I think, you know, if I'm being honest with you guys, I think. Uh, we have done a disservice to the name of Christ um, in in light of these recent events with so many evangelical people, people who name the name of Jesus Christ, uh, affiliating with uh, the ideology that was promoted through uh, through this insurrection even. And so I, I actually think that we need to do the job of uh, reorienting our eyes to uh, what 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 the gospel has to say about justice, what the gospel has to say about peace, what the, what the gospel has to say about loving our neighbor as ourselves. Like right. we lost that whole compassion and empathy thing a long time ago. And as far as I can tell, it's still in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. Our final guest today has been Reverend Steve Coble, teaching pastor of Renewal Church of Chicago. You can learn more at RenewalChicago.com. Brother, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. God's grace, man. God bless you guys. Yeah, Thank likewise, you. brother. Thank you all for joining us today. It has been one of my favorite shows we've ever done. We hope that you enjoyed it. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.